Open the precious Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Lord, help me to that end. I thank you, Jonathan, for the prayer that we would be convicted by what we learn. We know more than we practice. We need to learn to practice what we know. First Peter chapter 1, I begin reading at verse 13, and I'm going to read through verse 21. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by Him do believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Amen Amen and amen. This is the Word of the Lord. And our text for the sermon is the 17th verse. And if ye call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. The Lord will bless the preaching of His Word. The Bible is God's message to us, and it includes warnings and instructions of how we ought to live, and it is our sacred duty and solemn responsibility to pay attention to the warnings that are found in this passage. This God that's described here is hardly known today. And yet this is the God of the Bible. He is the God of Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. He's the God of Psalm Psalm 37 that we read a few minutes ago. The world has constructed a God to their own liking. And the God of the Bible is going to shock them at His coming. 
our Boy Scouts went to Iraq, and they called it shock and awe. Our Boy Scouts were over there with their pop guns in Iraq, and they called it shock and awe. The shock and awe that's coming when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven is going to let everyone know that it was pop guns and little rubber-tipped arrows that they were using in comparison to the God of glory revealing Himself with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter is a letter from Peter to the Jews that were scattered abroad throughout the Roman Empire. The first verse tells us that, and there's other places that tell us that as well. These poor Jews, when they followed the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized and left the worship of Moses' law and the other false traditions of the Jews, were persecuted for it, first of all by their own countrymen, and then they were persecuted by the Roman pagans, So no matter where they turned, they had enemies. And they had a trial of afflictions, as this introduction in the first chapter describes for us. But we don't have time for any more of that. I want to go right to the context. I want the context that precedes verse 17. I want the context that follows verse 17. We want verse 17 and whatever around it would help us. I hope that you have read 1 Peter 1. I hope that as I read those verses, it is sinking into your mind. I hope you can look at the page of your Bible and see that 17th verse and realize there's verses in front of it and there's verses behind it, all of which help us understand it. Verse 14, 13, verse 13, wherefore, that wherefore is taking us back to the lesson of verses 3 through 9, of this chapter, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back. And that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ should have been sufficient for the Jews to have borne up under their tribulations. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. The Christian religion is a religion of mental toughness. It is not a religion in which to relax and let others do your thinking for you. It is a religion in which you need to think carefully and guard your mind. You must guard it against false, foolish inputs, and you must guide it into wise, profitable inputs. Mental toughness. The Jews and Middle Easterns wore long, loose garments. They were cool and yet very modest. When they were going to exert themselves in running or some other bodily movement that was extreme, they would gather those loose garments up, tie a girdle or belt around their waist and cinch it up, which is to gird up their loins. That expression is used repeatedly because your loins are the middle part of your body. You pull the material up, snug it together, tie it off with a belt or a girdle. Now here it's a metaphor for something you're to do with your brain, your mind, your thinking process. Tie it up. Gather the loose ends and get it together and belt it up and girdle it up so that it's not running free. You don't, you don't have the right to think about anything you want to. Your thoughts are vain. And the thought of foolishness is sin, my brethren. We need to be thinking about good things, godly things. And the chief thing is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in this context. And it's a choice to think about it. You say, well, I just never think about it. 
I guess I'm too busy. No, you're not too busy. You're too lazy. Because you got to gird up your mind. This is a man. A man doesn't think what thoughts enter his mind. A man thinks what thoughts he puts in his mind. He chooses to think. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. By the renewing of your mind, you are to make be a living sacrifice. To, listen, I could preach right now for one hour based on study about the mind. I have preached four sermons in the past entitled that you have the mind of Christ. But I can't because I want the 17th verse in one sermon. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Mental toughness. Choose to think about the things God wants you to think about. While we're in this very epistle, look at chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind. 3.8. Finally, be ye all of one mind. That is an imperative verb commandment telling you that we all ought to think the same things. Chapter 4 and verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Think the same things Jesus thought, that it was worth dying in this world to please God and to sit at His right hand in the next world. Chapter 5 and verse 5 is to me. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the... 2, verse 2, excuse me. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. The Bereans had a ready mind. They received the preaching of the gospel with a ready mind. They searched the scriptures, they believed it, and they obeyed it. Christianity is a religion of mental toughness. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. We live in a foolish generation. When the Bible lists the different categories of humanity, old men, old women, young women, young men, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, what does it have to say about young men in verse 6? Young men exhort to be sober-minded. Greatness is by sober-mindedness. Greatness in the sight of God is by sober-mindedness. Greatness in the sight of men is by sober-mindedness. The great men of the earth are sober men. They think about serious subjects instead of entertaining themselves with Xbox, MTV, Mad Magazine, the NCAA March Madness, and other entire wastes of a mind. Christianity is a religion of mental toughness. Be sober. And I exhort you, young men, life is short, life is serious, and you better be sober about it because there is a sober God that's coming that only thinks of the day of judgment in a sense of humor because of the speed at which you burn. If you don't believe that, you need to read Psalm 37 again. If you don't believe it there, then you need to read Psalm, I mean, Hebrews 12.29 again. Our God is a consuming fire. He laughs at the wicked because he sees his day coming. Psalm 37. We laugh too much. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Anything that happens to you in your life is nothing compared to what's coming. No matter what terrible things people do to you or what unfortunate, I use the word foolishly as a worldling, what unfortunate things happen to you, there is a great grace coming. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you're to hope to the end for that. Verse 14, as obedient children. We are the children of God. God has chosen us and adopted us out of the orphanage of the fallen human race. But we want to be obedient children. Do all of you know what a disobedient child is like? How much it tears your heart, breaks your heart, is a grief to your mind and a grief to your soul. We are that times infinity to God. None of you know anything about grief, nor do you know anything about pain in comparison to what our Father goes through when we sin against Him. We don't want to be disobedient children. As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Every day, you make a choice of you being you. What are you? Every day, you fashion yourself. You take the little lump of clay called Karen Jones. And you put it on the spinning wheel of life. And you fashion it into something. And so does Tammy Grimm do it. And so does Mark Frederick do it. You take the lump of clay that is your life and you fashion it. You form it into something. Every day you make you. As obedient children, here's how you ought to make you. Not fashioning yourself. Not forming yourself by engaging in the same thoughts, speech patterns, and activities that you did when you were either unsaved, or when you are living the carnal life of a carnal, rebellious Christian. You don't form yourself that way. You form yourself completely new. You are transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are not conformed to the image of the world or its standard for what you ought to be, to be acceptable to them. You're transformed that you might be acceptable to God. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. The lifestyle of the world is based on lusts. They just do what their bodies crave. They're entirely ignorant of the important things in the universe. Verse 15, in contrast to the lusts and ignorance of verse 14, here's how we're to form ourselves. But as he which hath called you is holy... Be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation is not you talking to your friends. Conversation is just partly made up of you talking to your friends. The word conversation in our King James Bibles means the lifestyle. In all parts of your lifestyle, you should be holy. The God we worship is holy. And I have taught you that about His holiness before. God is holy. Just ask a man who picked up sticks on the Sabbath day in Numbers 15 if God is holy. Do you remember the little blue fringe that the Israelites were to wear on their garments? That little blue fringe was to remind them that God is holiness. Do you remember that on the mitre, the hat that the chief priests wore, that on that mitre it said, Holiness unto the Lord. Do you remember these things? But be ye holy. As I am holy. 
Holy is hatred of sin and freedom from sin and love of purity. Holiness is to get every scrap, spot, stain, and blemish of sin out of your life and to be pure before a God whose eyes see every little tiny bit of impurity as a blazing neon light in your life. He can't help it. And he doesn't want to help it. He is holy. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. Fire came from this holy God and consumed them for not worshiping God right. Ask Uzzah for trying to stop the ark from trembling and falling off the ox cart. Ask Job after meeting him. In Job 40 and 42. Ask Isaiah after meeting him in Isaiah 6. Ask Peter. Ask John. If you play around with this world and flirt with it, you are the enemy of God because you are committing spiritual adultery against the high king of heaven. And he is holy. The Bible teaches us all these things. In every part of your life. In your clothing. In your dress. In what you read. In your entertainment. In your friends. In your approach to worship. In your preparation. In your praying. In your handling of the word of God. In your reading, in your thinking, in your thoughts at night. Everything, all parts of your lifestyle should be holy because he is holy. And not only that, verse 16, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. It is written in the Bible. And so Peter wrote to Jews who knew the Old Testament very well and said it's not just my declaration by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but this was written down. And you should already know this. And I quote from Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26. Listen to it. Ye shall be holy unto me. For I, the Lord, am holy. And have severed you from other people. That ye should be mine. When it says as obedient children, it means we're his. When we call upon Him as Father, we're saying we're His. If we're going to do that, then God has severed us from all other people by adopting us. We have severed ourselves from all other people by calling Him our Father. Because they are not. They are the children of the devil. Ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. In order to be the Lord's, we must be holy. Holiness is hatred, repugnance, and rejection of all evil and impurity and the choice, the desire, and the love of pure things as defined by God, not as defined by little house on the prairie. Not as defined by the Boy Scouts of America. Purity as described by the Bible. Modesty, humility, Righteousness, godliness, temperance in all things. Heart, speech, actions. Like Psalm 37 taught us already today. That's the preceding context. We know that the preceding context is related to verse 17 because the first word of verse 17 is an inspired conjunction and. Then when we look at verse 18, we see an inspired conjunction as well. For as much. 
That's a conjunction as well, connecting verse 17 to verse 18. For as much as ye know. Now, in the preceding context, the the weight on verse 17 is because of the holiness of God in verses 13 through 16. The weight that comes to us in that 17th verse is because God is holy and we cannot, should not, must not live like we used to in a lifestyle that He hates. And we need to have mental toughness to choose to be holy because He is holy. Then, from a positive standpoint, in verses 18 through 21, the apostle appeals to the fact that you have been bought with a great price. If a kidnapper got a hold of you and some rich benefactor were to pay a ransom and deliver you from that kidnapper you would do what you could to please and honor that benefactor that paid the ransom for you. If you were being auctioned off as a naked slave on a slave trading block in chains, and some rich man bought you and then set you free, you would want to please and honor that rich man. If you were condemned to death on death row, and a rich benefactor made a campaign contribution and obtained, I shouldn't imply such evil things in high places, obtained a presidential pardon for you, and you were set free, you would want to please that benefactor. Their few millions, their millions are nothing in comparison to the most precious commodity in the universe. The blood. The blood. Of his only begotten son. Men. Men will go to war. The foolishness of war. The destruction of war. Over the shedding of blood. Of one person. Important to the leaders. Of a nation. God had his. Son's blood shed. By you and by me. Because of our sins. And we were redeemed by that precious blood. God has paid the ultimate price for our redemption. And so, verse 17, not only has the negative weight on it of God's, I don't consider it negative, but I'm trying to make a point, the severity of God's holiness that precedes the 17th verse, and now it's the value of the price paid for you in verses 18 through 21. Look, for as much. For as much means because. Do you know why you ought to do what's in verse 17? Because God paid the price of the blood, the precious blood of His own Son. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. The little illustrations I just gave you of a ransom to a kidnapper, the purchase price to a slave auctioneer, and a presidential pardon. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. The Jews were in love with costly things. They would take an oath. Matthew 23 tells us this. They would swear by the gold that was on the temple walls. Rather than the temple and the God that was worshipped in the temple. They measured things by how big your offering was. That's why God says in the Bible, I don't care if you bring me 10,000 rivers of oil. I don't care if you give me your firstborn. 
It is insufficient. It is my firstborn that will pay the redemption of your souls. For the redemption of your soul is precious and it ceaseth forever. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Copper, iron, they're base metals. They're found everywhere. They have no cost. You can earn them with a few minutes of wages. You can have yourself a pound of copper. I don't care that copper's gone up. It is still free. No, it's not 70 cents anymore a pound. It's several times that, but it's still free compared to the next metals I'm about to mention. Silver, $22 per ounce. Gold, $1,350 an ounce. Platinum, $1,700 an ounce. They're called precious metals. And all I said that for was what the word precious means. Because you were redeemed with the precious. There's nothing base or common about it. The precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, no mere lamb from a flock of sheep, but God's perfect Son. There was not a flaw in Him. His perfect Son in whom He was well pleased. And that Son always did those things that pleased His Father. Listen, no, none of us have ever had a Son like that that pleases us in every single thing. I have never been a Son like that. But God had a Son like that and we killed Him. And God allowed us to kill Him. And God killed him for us. God had chosen to do it before the world began, verse 20 tells us. But you know what? He didn't come until recently. You know what? These Christians right here were living in the next generation after the coming of Jesus Christ. Right. None before them, not David, not Abraham, not Moses, had seen or heard eyewitness reports about the Lord Jesus Christ. But these Jews had. And so Peter's appealing to them. You were redeemed with the most precious commodity in the universe. God planned to do it before the world began, this this being that you're going to call Father. But he sent him, and you're able to hear eyewitness reports about him. Could Peter tell a little bit from an eyewitness standpoint about Jesus Christ? Does he do so in the first chapter of 2 Peter when he says we were in the holy mount with him? Did he say, we're not telling you any fables about the glory of Jesus Christ coming because we've seen a glimpse of it when we were with him in the Holy Mount. I want you to understand the reasoning here. Verse 21, who by him do believe in God. Do you know why you believe in God? By the power and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27, he said, no man knoweth the Father save the Son. And no man knoweth the Son, save the Father. And no man knoweth the Father, save the Son, and whomsoever he, to whom he will reveal him. The Son must reveal the Father to you for you to believe in God. It's everywhere in the Bible, Brother John. Everywhere we look. Look at that 21st verse. Who by him do believe in God. There's no evangelist that can cause you to believe in God. Do you know what the message of Scripture is from the mouth of Jesus Christ? That even if we could bring someone back from the... I'm not just preaching at John. All of you should be listening. Amen. I'm not preaching at him. I'm preaching with him. Because I know he loves this truth. Jesus himself said that even if someone were to come back from the dead... Now that would be an impressive evangelistic story to tell, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be enough to get even dear brothers to believe in God. 
who by Him do believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not in a manger, nor on a crucifix, nor standing like John Lennon in a garden knocking on some door, hoping, wishing, begging that He might gain entrance. He has glory at the right hand of God that your faith and hope might be in God. There is our context. Verse 17. And if ye call on the Father. 1 Peter 1.17. If ye call. These kind of ifs in the Bible are not describing a doubtful situation, nor are they describing a contingent situation that might or might not happen, or that might be done or might not be done. These are things certainly done. As Christians, we call on God as our Father all the time. Heavenly Father, we open up our prayers. Let me share with you one example of this use of an if. Philippians 2.1, listen. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, is that a doubtful if? Is that a contingent if? If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, okay, you know how the word if's being used. We most certainly call upon our Father. Peter is just appealing to the fact, just like Paul was, when he said, if there's any consolation in Christ. There is most definitely any consolation in Christ. It's just a powerful rhetorical way of making you thinking, think about it by raising the if factor. Because you have to answer, there is definitely consolation in Christ. Then live accordingly. Philippians 2. If ye call on the Father, do you call on the Father? Do we call God our Father? Do we call on Him? Father, help me. Father, I'm confused. I need wisdom. Father, I don't know how to make it financially. I need money. Father, help me. Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. We call Him Father. Father, thank you for adopting me. I noticed that a number of you made your thanksgiving for doctrine. The adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to God the Father. We call Him Father. If ye call on the Father. Now let's notice three things about the God that we call upon as Father. First of all, He has no respect of persons. He does not care that you are superior in any measure or all measures to everyone else in this congregation or everyone outside this congregation. Superiority does not impress Him because in your best state altogether you are less than vanity. Your inferiority doesn't impress Him. Poverty doesn't mean a thing to God. That you're stupid enough to be poor doesn't impress God. That your parents were stupid enough to bring you poor into this world doesn't impress God. God has saved no one because they're poor. As a meritorious virtue. So it doesn't matter whether you're superior or you're inferior. It doesn't matter what the rest of society thinks about you. He has no respect of persons. He doesn't care what you think about you. We know what you think about you. You're the best thing that's ever come down the creation pipeline. That's why Jesus would teach you to learn to love your neighbor as yourself because you're already obsessed and infatuated and blinded by your incredible love for yourself. It doesn't matter, though, what you think of you. It doesn't matter what others think of you. It doesn't matter the things that you have done to impress others. 
so that they would say good things about you. None of that matters. He has no respect of persons. Second, he judgeth. Not that he shall judge. He judges. If you don't think that he's already judging, then you need to ask some of the characters that we can read about in the Bible. You need to ask about Moses and why he didn't make it to Canaan. You need to ask Beth Shemesh. A few thousand that lived in the area of Beth Shemesh that thought they could peek in the Ark of the Covenant. You need to ask Bathsheba about her baby, her love child. You need to ask David if numbering Israel had consequences. God judgeth now, presently. You need to ask Sapphira about fudging an offering with her husband. You say, well, she made it to church. She gave. Yep, she made it to church so she could be there for her funeral. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. I'm sorry that you work for employers that don't know how to properly measure your performance. But you do work for a master in heaven that knows how to properly measure your performance. And he always pays. The wages of sin is death. My family is seeing those wages being paid before our eyes. With the timing of Romans 5, I have been privileged to see Romans 5 fulfilled. That by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Another family in this assembly has seen that. I'm seeing it in a different way. He judgeth according to every man's work. He couldn't care less what you think of yourself. You ignorant idiots. I am an ignorant idiot. We were born like a wild ass's colt. We came into this world in the lowest parts of the earth. That's a woman's crotch. Just like a wild ass's colt. We were conceived in iniquity, and we go astray as soon as we are born, speaking lies. And we need to remember that. He doesn't care what you think of yourself. He doesn't care what you say about yourself. He would say this to you that like to talk about your profession. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. First John 2, 4. He couldn't care if you've deceived others by your public performance for three or four hours on Sundays. He couldn't care what you do outwardly that isn't matched with a heart equal or greater in fervent, pure affection for him. This, measure, this method of measurement is the same that we use when we're thinking properly. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Proverbs 20 and verse 11. See, you get to go to work. When, when those of you that worked for big companies, you got to go and punch in. And you got to punch out. And in between, you paced yourself as well as you could so that you could steal from your master. You don't steal from the master in heaven. Right. He measures every single thing that you do from the inside out. 
He doesn't really care about outward performance because what he wants is your heart. He wants you to love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if it is less than that, then he considers you flirting with something in your life and you are his enemy and you are guilty of adultery in his sight. He judges individually so that you can't hide in a group. You may like hiding inside this church, but he'll expose you and it doesn't matter because he judgeth, according to this text, every man's work, every man, singular's work. Therefore, we come to that little clause that ends the verse. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. God has given you a little bit of time. Some of you are at the end of that time. Some of you are nearing the end. Some of you have already wasted a third of your lives. Pass the time. He's given you a portion of time. Seventy is all that you can sort of just conceptually think about. You could easily die sooner than that. But he's given you some time. And we are told in a verse like this, and this is why I love the Bible, and this is why God has brought this verse to you, is for this clause. In the light of His holiness, verses 13 through 16, in the light of the preciousness of what He paid for you to be your Father, verses 18 through 21, in light of the fact that you call Him Father, this holy God of the Bible, in light of the fact that He doesn't respect anyone, that he judges presently and in the future. And he does it according to your performance. From your heart outward, past the time. You get up and you go to work. You get up and you go to work. And you come home. But when you go to work, you better be going to work in the fear of the Lord. And that fear is not a slavish terror of someone that cowers in a corner. That's what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. It is a holy, respectful reverence, an awestruck desire, an affection and love for God not to displease Him so that you can put a smile on His face instead of a frown. That's what fear of the Lord means in the Bible. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to depart from evil. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil because evil puts a frown on the face of God our Father. We do not want to disappoint Him, nor hurt Him, nor offend Him, nor anger Him. That is the fear of the Lord. And we should live in light of the fact that we call Him our Father. We want to be the obedient children that verse 14 describes so that we please our Heavenly Father. And He wants us to pass the time that He has given us in this world. We are sojourners here. This world is not ours. The animals around us, called the human race, they've made it their world. Mother Nature is their mother. The Creator God is our Father. We are totally different from them. And our lifestyle should be different. They are profane and wicked. Our God is holy and He wants us to be holy. We are to be a holy people, separated unto the Lord, zealous of good works, living a sober, godly, righteous life in this present evil world. You have a little bit of time. If you're past 60, your time is ending. If you're 80... Wow. If you're 20, you've already wasted a third of your life, young man. 
Do you know what he has to say to you? Be sober. That's all he has to say to you. He knows it's your biggest problem. Do you know, he knew what my biggest problem was when I was the same age. Be sober. Exhort young men to be sober minded. Because young men are foolish. Past the time of your sojourning. We are strangers and pilgrims passing through this world. God has put us here. He knows it's a pain. He knows we only have a temporary existence here. Do you know you only have a temporary existence here? You can choose to think about the infinite stage of your life that is infinite in length every day. You can choose to think about the infinite time you're going to be in heaven doing very different things from what this world does. Then you would take that little finite period of time God's given you and you would spend it differently. You wouldn't spend it like the world. You wouldn't listen to their advertisements. You wouldn't let your peers pressure you to fashion yourselves like unto them. You would fashion yourselves like unto your father. You want to be your father's son. You want to be your father's best son. You want to be your father's delightful son. Oh, to God, that God would grip us with that. And he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even if he is pure. The hope of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the knowledge that we are the sons of God. I don't want you to forget these words right here. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Christianity is a mentally tough religion. It is not a religion for you to relax. It's not a religion for you to let life happen to you. It is a religion where you make life happen the way it's supposed to happen. It's because you choose to do what is right what is right and speak what is right. It's because you choose not to let others influence your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Don't let your mind be loose, young man. Mentally tough. What toughness? That God is holy. And He will incinerate His enemies and they will consume like the fat of lambs. That He paid the precious blood of His own Son for you. For you. You can laugh at death in the grave. You can mock the cemetery when you drive by it. Because He doesn't respect persons. So you better be sober. Because He judges, you better be sober. Because He judges based on performance. Not on your thoughts about yourself. Not on the deceptive thoughts that you forced on others. He knows you from the inside out, and there is not a single intent or motive in your heart that is hid to Him. All things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. This is the message of God to us in this assembly. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. This is not our home. Their entertainment is not our entertainment. Our entertainment is glorying in the Lord. They glory in the dumbest of things. They glory in ridiculous things. Think of anything you want. They glory because they can take poor boys and put the first new set of clothes on them with shiny buttons. So they glory in the military. 
They glory in athletics. So that even though Alabama is twice the football team South Carolina is, South Carolina beats Alabama because that's the way the ball bounces. Because when you make a ball that is oblong and weirdly shaped, it's never going to bounce right. And yet they get all excited about a game of chance. Incredible. Why don't they come and pitch pennies with me? I'll tell you why. Because pennies are far less of a game of chance than the things they watch. Because a penny is 50-50. The greatest batters in the history of this country, and there's only been a couple of them, Ty Cobb, Stan Musial, in only their best years could ever approach a 400 batting average. And that was giving them three chances to hit the ball. I can pitch pennies at 500 anytime you want to ask me. I say all that to ridicule what men glory in. What do you glory in? Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. This is not our home. It is mental toughness that makes a choice. This is not my home. I am going to practice the mental discipline every day. This is not my home. There is a homecoming. My little time here is vanity and vexation of spirit. My time there is the infinite fulfillment of being in heaven and the glory of God forever and ever. Everything in your flesh despises what I'm saying. Everything in the world despises what I'm saying. The devil despises what I'm saying because he is never going to be fulfilled. God is going to be fulfilled in consuming him in the lake of fire. No one will ever support what I am saying. So we must support one another in what I am saying. And we must exhort one another. So the Bible says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because the Lord's going to descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. We're to live in the fear of this God who has no respect of persons. He judges, and He judges based on performance, and He's holy, and He paid the price of His Son. And if we turn away from His gospel, and if we go out of this assembly and get all excited and all wrapped up in the foolish entertainments of the NFL this afternoon or of anything else you choose as a substitute for delighting in God, the second assembly is going to tell you what He's going to do to you. And if you call on the Father... I call on Him. I have preached adoption to you the best I know how. I have called on Him. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, from the inside out, heart first, what you do at home, what you do when no one's watching, what your thoughts are when you're in bed, According to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. It's not fear that causes a person to go and hide in the trees of the garden. That's what Adam did. It's fear in the sense of reverence for God as our Father and that you want to please Him. So you run to Him and say, forgive me for neglecting you in Bible reading. Forgive me for neglecting you in prayer. Forgive me for not getting to church earlier and being better prepared. Forgive me for not guarding my thoughts. Forgive me for not guarding my lips. Forgive me for saying evil things and harsh things and cruel things and cutting things to others. 
Forgive me for fantasizing in my mind. Forgive me for getting excited about this world too much. Forgive me for not thinking about heaven. Forgive me for not thinking about your son coming for me, which is more important than anything else in my life. Forgive me. That is the fear of the Lord. Remember, you're strangers and pilgrims. You've only got a little time. Some of you, most of that sand has run out of the hourglass. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. May God bless the preaching of His Word.